Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. All of Wisconsin is under a high wind warning this evening, with gusts expected to exceed 65 miles per hour. The National Weather Service says that there is also a moderate risk of severe thunderstorms as well as a possibility for isolated tornadoes. The National Weather Service says that uh, during these high wind events, avoid being outside in forested areas and around trees, and if possible, remain in lower levels of your home and avoid windows. Travel may be difficult, especially for those driving large vehicles. The wind is anticipated to blow over trees, branches, and possibly power lines this evening, as well as anything else lightweight that may be outside. The city of Madison is asking people to wait to place their garbage bins until tomorrow morning, as they could blow over and homeowners would need to pick up any mess. Rob McClure will have a more in-depth forecast later on in the show. Oh, yes, indeed. So stay tuned. Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says that the investigation into the 2020 election will go on next year and will continue to cost taxpayers more money. The Associated Press reports that Voss blames Democrats who are fighting Michael Gableman's subpoenas for the extension. Gableman called for the arrest of two Democratic mayors in Wisconsin earlier this month for refusing to discuss the election with him behind closed doors. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, one of the mayors targeted, has repeatedly stated she's willing to meet with Gableman before the legislature and believes all discussions on the election should be public. Voss says the investigation will go on indefinitely as long as Gableman's legal battles continue. Assembly Minority Leader Gordon Hintz says that dragging the investigation out is in the Republicans' best interest because a long investigation gives the appearance that something illegal has happened. Governor Tony Evers has submitted new political maps today, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The maps come two weeks after the Supreme Court ruled to take a least changes approach to redistricting within the state. Governor Evers had originally submitted maps written by the People's Maps Commission earlier this year, but those maps were rejected by the Republican-led legislature. Evers' new maps more closely resemble the maps put forward by Republicans last month, which he had vetoed at the time. The new maps would reduce GOP majorities in the state legislature, however, uh, though the maps move fewer people than the Republicans' maps. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss criticized Governor Evers over the maps submitted today, stating that the maps were drawn without public input. The legislature still has to vote on the new maps. Madison Democratic Representative Sheila Stubbs introduced new legislation to create a task force on missing and murdered African-American women today. Stubbs said in a press release earlier that the task force is essential to looking at the underlying factors that cause violence towards African-American women. The National Crime Information Center says that in 2020, 34% of women reported missing were African-American and that black and indigenous women experienced the highest rates of homicide in the country. The city of Milwaukee has officially submitted its bid to host the Republican National Convention in 2024, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The city had hosted the largely virtual Democratic National (laughs) Convention in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, earlier in the pandemic. 
In the over 200-page application, the city touted their preparedness for the 2020 convention as well as the city's access to Lake Michigan. The Democratic National Committee has also invited Milwaukee to reapply for its convention in 2024, giving the city another chance to host in person. Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett said he would be as enthusiastic to support the Republican convention as he would the Democratic convention, calling Wisconsin a purple state that reflects the nation. And as you may have caught in the BBC News Bulletin, acclaimed author, public intellectual and feminist theorist Bell Hooks has died at the age of 69. Born Gloria Jean Watkins, she adopted the name Bell Hooks in lowercase letters in order to emphasize her books rather than herself. Her first work, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism, was published in 1981, kicking off a literary career and dozens of books that span topics from feminism, racism, gender roles, love, and politics. Hooks does have a local connection. After earning her undergraduate degree at Stanford and before returning to California for her doctorate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Hooks earned her master's degree in English at UW-Madison in 1976. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. The building at 131 West Wilson Street, which holds Paisan's Italian restaurant, has been shut down by the city for a second time after city inspectors found the building unsafe. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has the story. The Madison Building Inspection Division has closed the building at 131 West Wilson Street for a second time today. The city first opened a case on the building several years ago due to concerns with the parking garage which sits underneath the building. Occupants claim to have felt unnatural movement from the building. Pictures provided by the city inspector office in Madison to WKOW show large cracks in the ceiling of the parking garage. The building which houses Paisan's restaurant as well as several offices, was first closed in September of this year due to concerns raised by city structural engineers. The building later reopened after six weeks of discussion with the city, as well as the placement of safety measures within the parking garage. Matt Tucker is the City of Madison Building Inspection Director. Tucker explains why they had to close the building a second time. And the um, conditions by which the building was uh, to be reoccupied involved having the measures that were installed inspected periodically, physically inspected periodically, and then a report provided to our office that indicated that the measures were in place and were working and everything was in good shape. And we were no longer receiving those reports. They stopped coming to us according to the schedule that was established to allow the building to be reopened. And so ultimately we communicated that to the property owner with a, a deadline uh, that we were going to be taking a position to reclose the building if we weren't getting what we needed to verify that the building continued to be safe. The last communication the city had with the building owners was on December 1st. They were informed by the contracted inspector that they had stopped inspecting the building over a dispute in payment between them and the building owner. Tucker says that the deterioration has less to do with the age of the building and more with how the building is maintained structures, particularly structures that are designed to this matter, the purpose of which is to park vehicles coming off of the streets. What they need is a certain amount of maintenance over time. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they need to be clean. They need to be maintained. If you've ever seen the city of Madison's parking uh, ramps and structures, particularly the older ones, they're regularly undergoing maintenance. Uh, and this is just a case of the uh, parking structure under this building that has deteriorated over time. 
and uh, the required maintenance wasn't being implemented, I would say, uh, resulting in a condition where we took a step to have to ask them to uh, put in temporary measures to stabilize the building, etc. Tucker says it's a rare instance where the city closes a commercial building. He says the last instance he can think of happened in 2018 after severe flooding meant several buildings had to be closed by the city. Despite the rareness of the situation, Wally Baroski, owner of Paisan's Italian restaurant, says it's frustrating that the future of his business may rest in the hands of the building owner. Paisan's been in business for a long time. We employ a lot of people and I want to keep them employed. And that's, that is my goal, and uh, I don't want to see us jeopardize anybody's safety and health, but I, there, there may be some other ways to achieve that without closing this restaurant and closing this building. I'm not exactly sure what they all would entail, but I'd like to see us try to find something that enables us to stay open. It's, it's a pretty awful position that we've been put in, and it has everything to do with the negligence of our our landlord. Paisans has been open for over 70 years and currently has another 24 years on their lease for the building. Tucker says that it is still possible for the building to be reopened if they follow the proper channels to ensure that the building is safe. He says that if the building owners continue to submit regular inspection reports and that the temporary safety measures are working, the city would allow the building to reopen. Tucker also stated that the building is not in immediate danger of collapse and poses no risk to the surrounding area. The building owner, Rice Investments LLC, could not be reached for comment in time for broadcast. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Ahead of the next midterm election, Native American voters in Wisconsin are working to minimize the challenges of their ballots, stemming, for example, from registration difficulties and confusing voter identification requirements, both relatively new hurdles for a historically disenfranchised population. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin will be a major battleground in the 2022 midterms, and tribal voting rights groups are working now to ensure that Native American votes count in next November's elections. From confusing voter ID requirements to difficulties registering to vote, the groups say Wisconsin's tribal residents face many barriers when casting their ballots. Anjali Basid with Wisconsin Conservation Voices says election officials often apply the state's voter ID laws improperly to Native Americans. One example of this is, for example, um, tribal IDs are valid both as IDs for voting and for proof of residence, but we know that Native voters have been turned away when they've taken those forms of ID with them. In 2018, the most recent year such data is available, the League of Women Voters found voting sites serving tribal communities were more than twice as likely to turn voters away at registration than other sites, claiming they lacked proof of residency. For next year's elections, Basin says tribal advocates will be working with election officials to ensure that Native Americans have fair access to the polls. But barriers still remain. Dee Sweet, a member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation and manager of the Wisconsin Native Vote Program, says technology hurdles can also make it difficult for tribal members to register. Much of Wisconsin's voter registration process is conducted online through the MyVote website. The assumption is that everyone has access to be able to register online and they know the process and they're able to maintain broadband connectivity. And that's just not always the case in tribal communities. Despite those hurdles, data collected by Wisconsin Conservation Voices finds voter turnout in 2020 increased in all of the state's tribal communities. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester.
Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And the time is now 6.19, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Hazardous waste is a major part of waste management, but it mostly happens at a national scale outside of public scrutiny. Reporter Nate Carlin takes a closer look at the industry. Hazardous waste conjures up images of glowing radioactive blocks and dangerous carcinogens. And it is that, but it's also so much more. Hazardous waste and hazardous waste industries are all around us. At the dry cleaners, in the paint at the hardware stores, in the drugstore with the nail polish and the pharmaceuticals. Sarah Moore is a professor from the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Geography Department who works on hazardous waste streams. She says hazardous waste is a difficult category to pin down. These things are hazardous to human health and the environment, but that has a wide range of categories. So it could be flammable, it could be toxic um, and or poisonous, anything obviously radioactive. So it's not as straightforward a question to answer. In many ways, hazardous waste is an entirely separate waste stream than typical everyday trash. Unlike trash, which gets mixed together, each type of hazardous waste is handled separately and uniquely. And municipal trash usually gets dropped off at a nearby landfill. Hazardous waste, on the other hand, can travel across the continent to a facility dedicated to processing that specific type of waste. And while we think of trash as traveling mostly by truck, hazardous waste often travels by train. Historically, the railways were sort of at least believed to be good transportation for those kinds of residues because they're generally thought of as safer, part because they're less likely to get into accidents, things like that. But, you know, it's true also that a good deal of the waste, like hazardous waste that are shipped between U.S., Canada, and Mexico also happen. Over recent years, the waste management industry has been consolidating. Just last year, the largest waste disposal company in the United States, Waste Management Incorporated, acquired the fourth largest company, Advanced Disposal Services. The merger was challenged by the Wisconsin Department of Justice for promoting anti-competitive practices, as it effectively reduced the number of waste disposal companies operating in Dane County from three down to only two. The industry consolidation has been affecting hazardous waste disposal as well. Veolia is a French transnational waste disposal company. It handles the hazardous waste disposal for the Dane County landfill and is one of the largest hazardous waste companies active in North America. This year, it acquired Suez, its major competitor in the European market, for $15 billion. And Moore says fewer competitors can have unforeseen consequences for hazardous waste management. And so these agglomerations, I think, 
the reasons for these agglomerations are twofold. One is that, um, again, you need those specialized facilities in order to manage it properly. And then second is the fact that, as I said, there are only a few companies that do this. And so what we found when we were trying to figure out what most determined where hazardous waste went in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada was corporate consolidation was the most important kind of factor. And it's one that people often don't think about. People think about needing the facilities and uh, proximity. In our study, proximity didn't really matter. When hazardous waste reaches its destination, a few things can happen to it. Many substances are incinerated, although that leaves its own waste in the form of residue. Other substances are buried or stored in underground tanks. The most hazardous substances are buried in concrete, so there's no possibility of leakage. Citing hazardous waste facilities can be a fraught process. Often hazardous waste facilities are in poorer states or regions, with few options for economic opportunities. Some local managers they spoke to in these areas were like, well, it's either either the prison or the waste facility. Basically, these are our choices. So I think there, for some poor communities, it's, it is a, a choice for jobs. So the other thing I would say is that just like anything else, a lot of these things are cited without much community input at all, and often not that much input on the part of uh, local governments either. And even when a site is licensed, the material that are shipped to that site can change over time, often without the local community being informed. So if you're one of these big conglomerates, you could have a facility in Michigan and one of the reasons that you as a big conglomeration might have bought that facility was because it had manufacturing capability and you think you can convert that to waste management. Okay, well, you go ahead and do that. And then you can kind of make decisions about bringing in other materials that maybe weren't originally, you know, what you had said you were going to do because you're part of this giant network of corporations. And so you have these sort of different material streams that you can move around the country. Hazardous waste is regulated at the federal level by the EPA. And on the international level, there is an agreement called the Basel Convention that tries to standardize hazardous waste processing internationally. While both Canada and Mexico are signatories, the United States is not, but our regulations are broadly similar. Yet even with standardized regulations on paper, enforcement and monitoring can be varied across countries and states. Figuring out how much hazardous waste is being produced is quite difficult, since most hazardous waste is generated by private enterprises who then hire a private company to handle it, the actual volume of waste is hard to pin down. So that's actually one of the most difficult things to figure out because of the ways that hazardous waste is tracked. It's still almost impossible to track a lot of those quantities, at least as they move internationally. So I would be hard-pressed to actually give you a volume. The types of hazardous waste produced can also change quite quickly. Lead-acid batteries like those found in car batteries are a success story of hazardous waste. They used to often be shipped to Mexico where they were put in landfills. But regulations and industry practices now mean that a large percentage of lead-acid batteries are now recycled instead of being disposed of. However, lithium-ion batteries like the ones found in handheld electronics have greatly increased in volume. 
Recycling efforts have been spotty, and they are currently a problem material for waste handlers. E-recycling more generally is a problem for hazardous waste management. The fledgling industry is trying to address the large increase in consumer electronics that are making their way into the waste stream, but the recycling process itself often produces hazardous waste, sometimes with little or no oversight. I think on the one hand, people agree, good to take it out of the landfill, probably. But it is a little unclear, and it has been unclear historically, exactly where those materials end up. There are now, you know, there have been for the last decade, increasing tracking of, of where they go and a lot more regulation about trying to prevent them from being shipped to parts of China, for example, or certain countries like Ghana and Africa. And so people have tried to kind of stave off those international shipments, and there's been a lot of increased regulation to prevent that from happening. But on the other hand, it's, it's not really clear what happens to a lot of these items when they're supposed to be recycled either. Reporting for WORT News and Wastelands, this is Nate Carlin. You're listening to Handcrafted Artisanal Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got a lot more coming at you. How to clean up after natural disasters is one of the topics. That may have more relevance than we think. A trip back to 1969 is in the offing on Madison in the 60s. And, of course, we've got an incredible storm coming at us. You might pull up the WORT weather webpage and have a look at one of the visible or uh, water vapor satellite images there that might enhance your listening in a few minutes when we return. But first we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. With parts of the nation devastated after last week's storms, where tornadoes tore through multiple states, we ask, how do you clean up after a natural disaster? Morning Buzz producer Brian Standing spoke with Professor of Sustainable Infrastructure Sybil Darable from University of Illinois in Chicago to find out. If you've ever done any demolition work on an old house or a garage, you know there's all kinds of weird, nasty stuff in those walls. Asbestos, fiberglass, old wiring, asphalt shingles, lead pipes, the list goes on and on. Now, take all those toxic substances pulverize them and scatter them all over the landscape. Then do that again, oh, maybe 10,000 times. 
That's what happens when a major natural disaster, such as last week's swarm of tornadoes in the Mississippi River Valley, descends on a settled area. We can do better, says Sybil Darable, who teaches sustainable infrastructure at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Sybil joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning. So most engineers try to design buildings to remain standing after a tornado, flood, or earthquake, but your focus is on making buildings easier to clean up when they inevitably get blown down. Are there limits to how disaster-resistant we can make our structures? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, even if it's not a disaster, at some point a building is going to be uh, disposed of. And so all the material has, we have, you know, we have to do something with all the material. So we, we realize right now that the number of disasters is, is increasing. So we really have a lot of debris and waste that we have to deal with. And so we should plan for that. And, and again, you know, even if there's no disaster, there's always something we can do with the, uh, with the material once the building is at the end of its life. Now, how big a problem is this? How much waste and debris are we seeing from things like the tornadoes that we saw last week? I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. Uh, I don't have numbers in, in mind. It, it's, uh, I mean, actually estimating uh, the amount of debris generated by disaster is very, very difficult because you have big piles of, of uh, you know, big piles of debris and waste. Um, so we tend to count in terms of number of trucks, and don't ask me how many trucks we have per, um, per year, but it, it, it's huge. Um, we do have at least two different kinds of debris, at least two different kinds. One are all the... One is all the vegetation, uh, and this is really something we can normally reuse and, and, and burn or, or do something with compost. And then we have all the stuff from humans. Um, so these are a lot of construction and demolition materials. We call that CND, um, but as well as electronics and appliances and, and all of this. It's just it's, it, the quantity is enormous, and usually, you know, even if we can recycle them, uh, local recycling facilities get overwhelmed just because because they get so much of it in, in such a you know short period of time. Uh, in your article, you quote uh, a statistic from Hurricane Katrina in 2005 that that event, just that event, uh, left behind an estimated 75 million cubic meters of waste. Put that in perspective for us. What does a cubic meter of waste look like? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, so a, a you know one meter is about three feet. Um, so think about a cube that's three feet by three feet by three feet. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's quite sizable and it's quite heavy as well. And then when you think about, you know, 75 million, I mean, it, it's, these are numbers that are so big that, I mean, I don't think it's, imp it's impossible just to appreciate really how big it is. It's just enormous quantities, enormous, enormous quantities and overwhelming quantities. And how long does it take communities to dig themselves out after a disaster like that strikes? Oh, it can take years. I mean, that really depends on the community, but a lot of, most of the time, it doesn't take, you know, a couple of months. It takes years and years and years. The priority whenever a disaster hits is to clear out the roads uh, so that emergency vehicles, um, you know, can just come in, try to rescue people. Um, and then it's, 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 uh, then it's, it's a very tedious work um, to, to just clear out some debris one by one. A lot of the times, um, it, it's about really having a company coming in and, and cleaning the entire uh, plot of land where building was. And sometimes, again, that, you know, a lot of the time that, that soil that stays there is contaminated because of the paint and all of this was just spread around everywhere. So you even have to remove the topsoil and replace it with some other soil. Um, and when you think about the hundreds of houses 
where that happens. I know in California with the wildfires, it's, it's, it's an immense amount of work. And so it can really take multiple years, two, three years uh, before you're, you're back to something, you know, kind of normal. And what happens to all that debris after it's removed? Well, that's the big question. So that, that really depends. It depends on where you are. It depends on the regulations uh, state by state. Uh, ideally, what you want is to uh, reuse, recycle you know, as much as possible. So that's something you can do with, again, with the vegetation. Um, but whenever you're dealing with uh, household stuff, then it's different. I mean, maybe some of it can be reused. Maybe it can't. Uh, maybe again, because it's hazardous. Maybe uh, if it's during a tsunami, it was soaked in water, so you just can't reuse it. Um, so maybe if not too far, you have a, something called a waste to energy recovery plant. So that's whenever you take you know, material that can be burnt, you burn it, and then you use that energy to produce electricity. You do that. Otherwise, you, if you can, you send it to a recycling facility. Ideally, before the disaster, some contract agreement was passed between the local authorities and the um, recoveries, the, the recycling facilities nearby, and they can process um, some of those waste. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's really just piles of waste that stay there for a long time. Um, a lot of it ends up in the landfill as well. So you just take a lot, you know, landfills can, can really get a, can really, um, welcome a, a lot of different waste. And so you just pile it in a landfill. Now, in 2020, the U.S. experienced a record-setting 22 natural disasters that caused at least a billion dollars in damage. And in 2021, uh, we're approaching that number again. Is this something that we're just going to have to deal with in the future as we look at climate change? Uh, and as far as we can tell, yes. Um, and not only are we going to get used to the numbers that we have now, but they're probably just going to increase. Um, and that's even more the case if we keep building in areas, like you said, for tornadoes, we might not know. Uh, but for a lot of other places, especially around the coastlines, we know that these are very disaster-prone areas. And if we keep you know, allowing people to build there, um, again, we're just going to get more and more debris. It's just going to increase. So let's talk about some some solutions to this problem. What are some ways to design or construct uh, buildings and infrastructure so that if they are destroyed, they're easier to clean up? Well, that well, so that's really the that's really the thing, right? And so the main problem that we have right now is, at least when it comes to waste, we have two kinds of waste. Uh, one is your general municipal sort of waste that we can recycle or that we know how to deal with very, very easily. And the other one is the hazardous waste. Um, and that's going to be your paint and other things. And these all have to go to very specific landfills. Um, so you really have different types of landfills depending on the, the owners. And so whenever you have contaminated material, um, like a house, you know, that was just torn down, there's some uh, hazardous waste. You can't, it, it, it's hard to, to select and to know, all right, just that little bit is going to go to the hazardous waste landfill, and this one's going to go to the municipal, you know, typical landfill. Uh, so you just overwhelm your hazardous landfills. Uh, so if we can have buildings that are built in such a way that, um, that that selection is done, or if we can limit how much hazardous waste we have at home, uh, so developing different uh, paint materials and different types of products that are much more easily recyclable. Um, that that would be the goal, really. And what are the big... uh, the other thing is? Go ahead. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Finish your thought, please. And I was going to say the the other thing is also to try to pass some regulations so that um, it's easier. So dealing with that waste that we have now, there's some things we can do with it. Uh, a lot of times we get just also get overwhelmed. So it's looking at regulations to try to more easily differentiate what can we use, or what can we you know what can we reuse, what can't we, uh, what can we do with it. 
and and how do we um, how do we become comfortable with again those you know huge quantities of waste that we have to deal with for uh, individual disasters? So in some cases, this is a matter of uh, sort of keeping you know those materials uh, disposing of those materials properly before disaster strikes. So you know things like household chemicals or things like that are clean sweeps or um, you know cleaning out your garage. Is that really something that's going to help in the, these kinds of circumstances? Well, I don't know if it's not so much about cleaning out your garage, but it's about finding products that are not as toxic. And so when it comes to herbicides and even insecticides, more and more now we have natural-based products. So those become more and more common, and at some point if we can even ban toxic materials, um, then the problem is not even there. So whether you clean your your garage or not, uh, it should be okay. Now, are those alternatives as effective? Are there um, trade-offs for using less toxic chemicals, especially for something like a pesticide, which kind of has to be toxic, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, it's, I mean, we're, you know, there's, I'm not, I'm not an expert in that, uh, but we are developing products, right? New products are coming out every day. Um, so at some point, eventually, and, and it seems to me that the market really is eager for more, uh, nat, you know, nature-based uh, solutions. Um, so we're, we're going in that direction. Is that something that's going to happen in overnight? No, but in, in the matters of, you know, few years, decades, surely we'll, we'll be there. All right. We've been speaking with University of Illinois Chicago Professor of Sustainable Infrastructure Systems, Sybil Darable. Thank you for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you, Brian. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, there's certainly a lot going on this evening. I was complaining a couple of weeks ago about how boring the weather we were experiencing at that time was. And uh, given what happened last Friday and what we're about to go through tonight, I guess I should have kept my mouth shut. Forecast discussions from the National Weather Service offices across the Midwest have been flush with phrases like historic and unprecedented as the prospects for this approaching storm became clearer over the past couple of days. And this storm is apparently not going to disappoint the way it's looking still. There is little more remarkable about this approaching storm than its sheer synoptic intensity, a sense of which you can glean from looking at any of the satellite imagery that we have up linked up on the WORT weather webpage. The water vapor images there will give you an idea of just how strong the upper level winds are that are diving down and through the parent upper trough that's uh, now over the western plains. The velocity of those upper winds is partly what's responsible for evacuating the upper part of the atmosphere and uh, the air column and inducing the lift that's deepening the intense surface low that we've got going down at the surface. That surface low is currently centered over northwestern Iowa and it's down now to 986 millibars. It just dropped a couple millibars while we were on the air. And the uh, visible images that are on the weather webpage, either the large one of the U.S. as a whole or the upper Midwest, will show you the impressive curl of low-topped convection that's developed earlier this afternoon across Nebraska and is now boiling northeastward across Iowa at a, a harrowing forward velocity. Radar indicated tornadoes and mesocyclones which sprang forth almost immediately as that convective uh, convection developed at mid-afternoon. Those were reported advancing at speeds between 60 and 95 miles per hour in the warnings that were issued uh, from the Nebraska Weather Service offices earlier. 
we should see a uh, reduced tornado threat as that line approaches here in a couple hours, but uh, a non-zero threat given that we've had an impressive increase in our dew points along with our temperatures today and the latent heat and that increased moisture level may provide just the enough uh, upward directed potential energy to fuel a brief spin-up or two as those uh, showers and storms come through, especially in areas uh, to the far western part of the listening area. The amount of vertical shear in the atmosphere, especially in the lowest uh, three or 4,000 feet where it counts, is uh, pretty astonishing and well more sufficient than is necessary to get the atmosphere rotating around a vertical axis should some of those rolling motions that are being produced get punched upward by a strong, strong enough updraft. There'll be plenty of other strong wind-producing factors, though, at play as we go through the evening without having to worry about tornadoes. Wind gusts in the 40 to 50 mile per hour range have been widespread all through the afternoon ahead of the thunderstorms out to our west with a few of the measured gusts ahead of and within the convective line up in the 60 to 90 mile per hour range so we can expect an amp up in wind speeds as we get past about 8 30 or 9 o'clock this evening and the likelihood of damaging gusts is probably highest from around that time until the precipitation passes that may be through a window of about an hour or so between 9 and 11 p.m since the vertical processes of uh, precipitation production are likely to help draw down some of the stronger winds that are aloft, uh, even if uh, thunder and lightning are actually done by that time. And then as colder air comes in, uh, maybe after 11 or o'clock or midnight, we may see a second spike in the wind speeds for a few hours as strong downward motions in the denser incoming Arctic air carry more momentum downward from the higher winds aloft and I'll just observe that wind speeds jump up towards 70 miles per hour just a couple thousand feet overhead. Winds will continue to slowly subside then through the night with temperatures plummeting from maybe the low 60s still at midnight or at least upper 50s uh, at which point they're likely to set a new temperature record for tomorrow's uh, calendar date. Uh, the, therm- the thermometer will uh, jump down to the low or mid-30s by dawn tomorrow. Uh, incidentally, as far as those temperatures are concerned, we set up both a record high daily temperature today. Uh, 67 so far, unless we go yet higher uh, in another hour or two. And the uh, new record high for December, also in Madison, was set today at 67. That daily record uh, of 67 for the 15th of December is 15 degrees higher than the previous record, which was set just 10 years ago. So anyway, to the forecast, well, obviously prepare for high winds. The skies will continue to thicken through the evening with showers or perhaps a few remaining thunderstorms approaching from the west as we get on towards 9 p.m. or after. The line is currently moving, as best I can tell, between about 50 and 70 miles per hour to the east-northeast, and they'll come racing through, uh, maybe at a slightly diminished speed, and it may be producing strong gusts out ahead of it, and probably within it between some of the cells. Some brief rotation may accentuate some of the gusts in places, even if we don't see any official tornadoes or warnings being issued. Winds will rise again then as we get on towards midnight and uh, temperatures start to drop with uh, winds slowly veering more westerly, uh, sustained up at 25 to 35 or 40 miles per hour, gusting up uh, towards 60 or, uh, miles per hour or higher at times. Temperatures will fall steadily to the mid-30s as the skies clear a bit and winds will come down to about 20 to 30 miles per hour by dawn. 
Tomorrow we'll see some increase in clouds during the day, but otherwise be sunny, with temperatures holding in the mid-30s on west-northwesterly winds, coming down about 10 to 15 miles per hour by the end of the day. Temperatures will drop into the mid-20s overnight, with westerly winds at uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour, finally coming down to about 5 to 10 miles per hour by dawn on Friday. We'll be in the low 30s for high temperatures on Friday, with light northerly winds uh, Temperatures dropping into the mid-20s overnight. We'll see a colder air mass come in then Saturday into Sunday with high temperatures in the upper 20s and an increase in cloud cover on Saturday with veering northwesterly winds and uh, mid-teens overnight and upper 20s on Sunday. No significant weather coming up over that uh, weekend as well. Uh, we are currently at 62 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 59. The winds are out of the south, uh, 25 miles per hour, still gusting up above 30. Uh, we've got uh, overcast about 15,000 feet with some scattered cloud layers underneath, and the barometer is falling very rapidly at 29.53 inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to December 1969, a month of women's liberation, violent protest, and a milestone in black studies. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s. All these come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, December 1969 On the 1st, the UW faculty unanimously accepts plans to establish a Department of Afro-American Studies to grant BA and BS degrees in the new Afro-American Studies major, the primary demand of the Black Studies strike in February. Proponents hope the Regents and Coordinating Council for Higher Education will give final approval in time for the department to start next fall. Better relations between blacks and the Madison Police Department may be in the offing as Police Chief Wilbur Emery promises the Madison NAACP that the city will hire a full-time specialist in community relations and increase training, as recommended by the Equal Opportunities Commission. The Badger football program will soon be under new leadership as the athletic board decides not to renew the contracts of head coach John Coda and his staff. Coda, a former star quarterback for the Badgers and the son-in-law of former Madison Mayor Henry Reynolds, had a three-year record of 3-26-1 since he replaced coach Milt Brun, whom the athletic board pushed out following the 1966 season. A massive urban renewal project for the Mifflin neighborhood runs into trouble at the Plan Commission, as area alder Paul Soglin challenges plans for high-rise condominium units designed for adults working downtown. Soglin wants to rehab the existing housing stock through renovation and cooperatives rather than build new. On December 6th and 7th, about 70 women, students, TAs, young professionals, wives, mothers, attend the Women's Liberation Conference at the University YWCA on Brook Street. Workshops include 
the psychology of women, women and sex, family structure alternatives, women and racism, roles of women in other cultures, images of women in the mass media, women as exploited consumers, jobs and pay structure for women, and women's liberation as a part of total change. On the 18th, quirky attorney Edward Ben Elson, 28, co-owner of the No Hassle Head Shop and Clothing Store on University Avenue, declares his candidacy for Dane County District Attorney at the Wilson Hotel while wearing a modish gray Edwardian suit and maroon shirt. Convicted in June of violating the state law requiring motorcyclists to wear helmets, Elson vows to not enforce that and other what he calls bad laws, such as those against marijuana and cohabitation. He warns that it may even be a crime someday not to wear a seatbelt. Despite his weak showing in the spring mayoral election and calling himself, quote, mad as the hatter, Elson says he's dead serious and will campaign vigorously as the only candidate of the American Transcendental Party. On the 19th, business professor James Grasscamp, UW-PhD 1964, is named the state's Handicapped Person of the Year by the Governor's Committee on Employment of the Handicapped, a quadriplegic Grasscamp developed polio in 1950 at age 17 and has been in a wheelchair since. He joined the faculty in 1964 and is an owner of Landmark Research Incorporated and a commissioner of the nonprofit Industrial Land Utility Corporation. And these items from the protest deadline. On the 10th, Governor Warren Knowles signs into law the seventh bill this year cracking down on student protest. The new law, a direct response to the black studies strike, sets a minimum one-semester suspension from university attendance or employment for any person convicted of a felony or misdemeanor arising out of the forceful disruption of classes, the disruption of pedestrian or vehicular traffic, or the seizure of university buildings. On the 12th, a junior at West High School is suspended for handing out copies of the UW Daily Cardinal on school grounds. Under a policy passed by the Board of Education, all literature must be reviewed and approved by the school principal before it is distributed. The students sought approval of the Cardinal's December 9th issue, which featured a front-page story entitled, Radical Action Grows Among West Students. West High Principal David Spencer forbade its distribution, but the student handed out copies anyway, and was suspended for insubordination. Students seen with their own copies were told to get rid of them under threat of similar discipline. Later that day, an action by the Students for a Democratic Society against T-16, the Quonset hut at the corner of Linden and Babcock Drives used for ROTC instruction, leaves four protesters arrested and four campus policemen injured after a free-swinging melee. About 200 demonstrators then moved through the campus, smashing windows in the Army Math Research Center, Bascom Hall, and the Humanities Building, before a vanguard of about two dozen students attacked the unguarded Peterson Administration Building, where they throw garbage cans through the large interior plate glass windows and destroy or remove thousands of the hated photo ID cards. The destructive vandalism is attributed to small autonomous affinity groups, whose ranks have been growing since the black studies strike. 
The Daily Cardinal applauds the objectives and accomplishments of the march, but decries that poor execution resulted in, quote, the needless and counterproductive property destruction. At 4.15 in the morning of December 28th, student radical Carl Armstrong breaks three windows in T-16, tosses two one-gallon jugs filled with gasoline inside, and lights a match. University senior Bryce Larson hears the breaking glass, sees the flickering flames, and calls campus police. The Madison Fire Department is able to save the building, limiting damage to about $1,000. Police track Armstrong's footprints to Trip Circle, but lose the trail and never develop any suspects. On December 31st, Armstrong enlists his brother Dwight in a plan to steal a plane from Middleton's Maury Airfield, where Dwight works, to make a bombing run on the Badger Ordnance Works in Baraboo. About two hours into 1970, Carl drops three makeshift bombs of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, ANFO. They fall harmlessly into the snow and do not explode. Driving back to Madison, Carl is pulled over by police and given a warning for speeding. It's the start of the New Year's Gang, which will undertake a series of firebombings and other actions, culminating in the ANFO bombing of Sterling Hall, home of the Army Mathematics Research Center, at 3.42 on the morning of August 24, 1970. The explosion does about $2 million in damage to the building, does not affect the AMRC, and kills postdoctoral physics researcher Robert Fosnacht, 33, who had no connection to the Army Mathematics Research Center. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT news at six. Your reporter this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing and Stu Levitan. Chuck Hademan is tonight's broadcast engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast and Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host Robert McClure. And I'm your host Vicki Iden. Up next is Query followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.